Imagine you're a kid again, sitting in the passenger seat of the family car. Your dad is driving you to San Francisco for the afternoon to see your grandparents. You fought about the trip earlier, and he won, and now you're looking out the window, not talking. As you hurtle down I-80, approaching the bridge, the hills open up to the bay. Your view of the ocean is obscured by rows and rows of ugly billboards. But if you look, just there, underneath the billboards, you'll notice something strange. What looks like a Viking ship, stranded in the mud with colorful flags strung from the mast. It's not seaworthy. The vessel is cobbled together from stray planks of wood and trash, but it's huge, big enough for a whole crew of bloodthirsty Vikings. You press your nose to the window. More figures rise up from the mudflats. A dragon with hubcaps for eyes fights a driftwood T-Rex. A sphinx made of planks and boards smiles at you with crooked pink lips. Planes, roosters, a 12-foot snowy egret, and a shimmering fish. Birds perch on the smokestack of a ramshackle train. You ask your dad, what is this place? He answers, the Emeryville Mudflats. For this season of Raw Material, we're driving across California, looking at art in the landscape. My name is Jessica Placzek, and I'm a reporter. My name is Maddie Gobo, and I'm a fiction writer. Together, we're looking at what art can teach us about life in the West, its past, present, and possible future. This is season three, Landfall, a production of SF MoMA. Today, we end our road trip close to home, back in the Bay Area. Based on its enormous scale, remoteness, and high cost of production, Land art might seem like something that can only be made by famous artists or massive corporations, but we want to close this season with the argument that land art is for everyone, because land is for everyone. You don't need patrons, you don't need imagineers, you don't need special tools or materials. And the Emeryville mudflat sculptures are proof. From the 1960s to the 1980s, this communal sculpture garden flourished on abandoned land. Its artworks were built with free and found materials by mostly anonymous creators. The sculptures were best viewed from the southbound I-80 freeway, where it passed through Emeryville, a small industrial city between Oakland and Berkeley. To talk about this special place, we need the help of an expert. We met one of the foremost historians of the Mudflats at home in Emeryville, where he lives with his wife, son, and puppy. I am Joey Enos. And what do you do, Joey? I am an archivist for the National Pastime Museum. And you're also... An artist. (laughs) Enos was connected to the Mudflats before he was even born. His mom built a baby buggy out of trash on the Mudflats to tell his dad that she was pregnant. At the time, my, my dad ran a family business in Emeryville, and he was on the Chamber of Commerce. And so they told him that you should go check out the mudflats. Look what your wife did, yeah. And so that's, when I, that's how I found out that I was going to be born. 
By that time, the mudflats had become an art gallery, political protest site, and community message board, all in one. But when did the sculptures first appear? It started small with a class of art students and a 10-pound bucket of nails. In the late 1950s, assemblage art was sweeping the contemporary art scene. Assemblage is a word for sculptures created from found materials. This idea of making junk out of detritus at a time where the 1950s were just product after product after product after product. So it was actually a really radical idea to say we're not going to buy and use new products, we're going to use old ones. At Oakland's California College of Arts and Crafts, or CCAC, a professor wanted to give his students an opportunity to build their own assemblage. In 1960, Everett Turner had a sculpture class, and so on the weekend, they decided to explore this idea of making junk art. And an artist, Gary Knox Bennett, suggested Bay Farm Island, which is next to Alameda. It was literally an island surrounded by a marshland. At the time, shipbuilding companies in Oakland and Emeryville were dumping their trash into the bay. So there was a lot of free material floating around for anyone to use. It was the perfect place for a field trip. The teacher, his students, and their partners ventured out with nothing but some hammers and 10 pounds of nails. Over the course of a single day, they worked together to build a structure from found materials. They're calling it a ship, but it doesn't quite look like a ship. It's not seaworthy. <laughs> Slightly resembles an upside-down pyramid. There's a flagpole. There is um, a rudder. I believe there's a, there's a doll head at the mast. Um, but there's these little sort of wooden, you know, silly faces all over it. <laughs> and it, so it's made out of plywood and scrap wood, mostly, yeah. that's just been nailed together haphazardly. Right. A woman named Penny Daimler photographed the class sitting proudly atop their funky ship. After that, the class left, and the sculpture gradually fell apart. Later, Daimler had a show at CCAC where she showed her photographs of the class ship. A young artist, John McCracken, saw these photographs and decided to do it on his own. He had his own ideas about abstraction. He wanted to get to sort of this pure aspect of his work. And so he thought that he could sort of work these ideas out with junk as, as these students did. And so in 1962, he went out to the waterfront at the Emeryville Crescent. The Emeryville Crescent was in probably the loudest, most busiest spot in the whole Bay Area. You know, you have like three, four major freeways meeting right there. And at the time, Berkeley didn't allow it, but Emeryville, you could allow billboards. Millions of cars would drive by there every day, and then you have these giant billboards. It was just a very sort of full space. Because of all this visual congestion, nobody noticed when McCracken parked on the side of the road and began to quietly build his sculptures. And then people started to see them, and very quickly there was copycat artists. McCracken's abstract sculptures were soon joined by more figurative works. A local high schooler snuck out onto the mudflats and built giant hands and dragons just for the heck of it. And those sculptures inspired others. Soon the mudflats became a lively place. Workers from surrounding factories would walk over on their lunch breaks. Students would skip class to hang out there. And artists would round up their friends for excursions on the weekends. 
It soon caught the eye of filmmakers, and a handful of short documentaries were made, like this one by Rick Reynolds. The road to San Francisco had become a drive-through art gallery. There were giraffes, wooden ships, and kangaroos along the freeway each morning. People came from all over to build Chinese dragons, elephants, fish, and totem poles. Each figure was an echo of a youthful memory, fantasy. The sculptures were actors frozen in time, and this was a stage where people could play out their dreams. All the local newspapers picked up like what was happening along the freeway. It looked great. The pictures looked great. Local news became national news. Time magazine wrote up a multi-page spread calling the Emeryville Crescent a mudflat museum. But this sculpture garden wasn't a total free-for-all. There was an unwritten code of conduct. These sculptures were malleable, partly because, you know, when you build things in mud, they just don't last. So you can't really take possession of it. When you would make work, you know, it, it was, you know, lucky if it lasted a couple days. But some things, you know, lasted. That meant people could borrow pieces of your sculpture to make a new piece. And let's not forget, this is the 60s. When activists heard about the space, they began to create artworks that would transmit political messages to passing cars. If you made anything political, it was asking for people to mess with it, to either add to it or to, you know, flatten it because they disagreed. For example, someone built giant driftwood letters that spelled fuck war. People loved to knock it down or spell something different. This process of editing was actually shown in a deleted scene from Harold and Maude, the cult classic film from 1971. The main characters are having a romantic moment off the freeway when two guys run out in front of them and start kicking the fuck war sculpture. When they run off, all that's left are giant letters spelling war. Emeryville's waterfront was the perfect place for this fluid form of expression. Changing tides brought new materials and swept the old ones away. Migrating birds might stop and roost for a day or two, only to move on again. It was an ephemeral place, always changing, disappearing, and reappearing. But eventually, most of the mudflat sculptures vanished for good. Well, we made it. We are at the mudflats, and there's still debris. It's like this brown, scrubby, I don't know, pondweed kind of stretching out in front of us. Yeah, there's no beach. The waves just like disappear into this marsh or bog or whatever it is. Yeah, I don't think that a lot of people sitting in cars would be able to see us. I don't think they can see us right now. Like where the where the freeway entrance is, there's uh, you can kind of see out over the mudflat there, and there's still something. There's some kind of a sculpture way out there. This is not a beautiful place. Maybe that non-beauty is what inspired artists to come here in the first place. Its ordinariness meant the art wouldn't have to compete with stunning vistas. It wasn't intimidating, and any amateur felt they could add to it. On our visit, we only spotted two sculptures, simple horses made of buckets. So what happened? Where did all the sculptures go? 
Well, it was a slow process. As the Bay Area grew more prosperous, Emeryville decided to develop its scrappy industrial waterfront into a place where people might want to live. There's a lot of conspiracy theories of what happened and why. For 15, 20 years, there's a, a sweet balance of building and construction and deconstruction. By the 1980s, its sculptures are quickly flattened out, especially political ones. Eno says he can understand why the people living in the new developments next to the mud flats wouldn't like them. They'd bought Miami Beach-style high-rise condos with floor-to-ceiling windows overlooking the bay. These derelict junk sculptures didn't fit in with the view the developers had promised. Some people suspect it was the developers themselves who started to dismantle the sculptures. Some pieces were smashed to bits in the dead of night, and others were set on fire. There was just much more uh, destruction. Environmentalists also disapproved of the mudflat sculptures. They were concerned about the impact of all that junk on the Bay's delicate ecosystem. These activists lobbied the city to protect the marsh for the sake of its endangered species, like a bird called the clapper rail. This increased environmental awareness made it less culturally acceptable to go out into the marshes. Artists couldn't make their junk art without disturbing these birds' natural habitat. Though people did continue to build, they got sloppy, dripping paint and leaving more trash than was there before. Then, in 1989, came the Loma Prieta earthquake. The latest word on the magnitude of this quake is... Sections of Emeryville were damaged. The city was forced to redesign its infrastructure. The highways that once ran alongside the waterfront were rerouted so that motorists no longer had a clear view to the mudflats. And without an audience, artists were less incentivized to make work. In 1998, Caltrans spent millions of dollars to clean up the area, using helicopters to cart away tons of garbage and driftwood. Without access to free materials, the sculpture garden was finished. These pictures look great, and they are great, but it's chaos. You know, it's, it's beautiful chaos. But I think by the 1980s, people were exhausted. So whether it was the development companies or the city or the railroads or, you know, even Caltrans who are, you know, trying to maintain these freeways, they were just ready to be done with it. The culture was changing. The mindset that made the sculpture garden possible, collaboration, anonymity, and access to free materials, began to seem suspicious, radical, and even un-American. Today, you can find descendants of these artworks at festivals like Burning Man. But those sculptures require planning and a budget. To see them, you have to buy a ticket to the festival and drive way out to the desert. That's a far cry from the DIY free-for-all spirit of the mudflats. That said, there are ways to find and make accessible land art. Just take a page out of Joey Enos's book. His artwork comes from a place we're all familiar with, Saturday morning cartoons. I was, I was a, definitely a, a 1980s TV baby. And so I would wake up at 5 a.m. as a kid and at least get two hours of cartoons before I would have to go to school. 
Enos carves cartoon elements like hay bales, wooden planks, and brick walls out of industrial foam and assembles them into colorful room-sized installations. You almost feel like you're walking through the backdrop of an old Roadrunner cartoon. A lot of those cartoon landscapes were inspired by the real Western environment. I grew up in, a, in Alameda, and in Alameda there's just there's such an array of architecture and space. It's totally normal or not silly to have an adobe house next to a Victorian. You know, that, that landscape was like normal. Enos is right. There is something cartoonish about life in California. Something out of proportion, fantastical, even a little absurd. I, I always had a lot of humor with my work. And California art has always been funny. And that's another tool that you can use that sort of contrasts itself with the, the awe of the you know, California landscape is make something funny because it's a way to stand out, you know. Enos is working in the tradition of scrappy, self-reliant East Bay artists, like the original Mudflat sculptors. To create his cartoon environments, he relies on cheap, portable materials. Space in the Bay Area is limited. And so if you're going to make big work, you got to make it movable. You could only ask so many friends to move stuff for you or to help you, you know, without paying them, you know. So, but if you make everything out of foam, you could do it yourself. So that was like a big aspect of the work because I wanted to make big work, but I would have to do it myself. Enos likes to use foam in particular because it's exactly the kind of junk his parents might have found at the mudflats. And just like the mudflat sculptures, his foam pieces are reusable. You know, a lot of these pieces, you know, have been with me years just because I reuse them and you know not, not only does it you know save me money but it, in the context of the work it makes perfect sense with you know the kind of things I've been trying to touch upon with junk art and you know these things that at one point were like actual structures to make something and then I would just kind of break them down and I was I started realizing I'm making my own cartoon you know refuse you know Take it from Joey Enos. If you want to build land art, you can do it cheaply. There are materials everywhere you look. All you need is a little bit of space and some free time. Your land art might be something that exists only for an afternoon. You can pay tribute to the epic California landscape, or you can poke fun at it a little. And even if you aren't ready to start building, remember that you can still make land art just by adjusting the way you look at a place. It's easy. Let us show you how. If you live in California, you probably spend a lot of time looking at the landscape from inside a car, stuck in traffic on the Bay Bridge, heading east to Tahoe, north to the Redwoods, south to the Mojave, or hugging the curves of Highway 1 in search of that perfect wave. California is big. You're going to be on the road a while. So why not play a game to pass the time? Look, there, under the freeway overpass. Two massive concrete triangles, monoliths, 70 or 80 feet high and thick, holding up more concrete and asphalt and iron and cars. The triangles are set on a pedestal, so they catch the sun with their sharp edges. Their gray skin is smooth. 
To begin the game, simply ask your fellow travelers, who made that art? Everyone observes the work through their own separate window, taking in the scale, the effects of the light, the texture. You all decide on an artist. Ancient aliens, Michael Heiser, the American Tollbridge Company, and a transformation has begun. The game repeats when you pass a junkyard where someone has stuck a sheet of rusty metal to stand upright in the muck. There's a hole in the middle about the size and shape of the moon, a rising crescent. Starlight filters through. Who made that art? The junk man did it, or Nancy Holt. Later, the road runs along a lake ringed with strange white rock formations, trippy melted towers like candles or sandcastles. In the air are hundreds and hundreds of birds, soaring, calling, landing and launching again in swirling and dizzy eddies. Perhaps now the question isn't who made that art, but what? Maybe it was acid rain, or a secret mineral spring. Or maybe it was a thousand anamendietas in ruffled white robes singing birds down from the sky. In the far lane, a construction crew digs a hole to another dimension. Rivers of sand stream across the highway, migrating from beach to city. A line of pine trees wave their golden needles, while out to sea, fog gathers like purple velvet. There is a kind of magic in land art, art set free from the confines of the gallery wall, running wild in the landscape untamed, spontaneous, and moving fast. But you can capture it, even if only for a moment. Land art comes into being when you give wildness a frame. When you say, here's a place that matters. Look at it with me. Feel that breeze stand on this soil. Listen. This land tells a story. Well, that's the end of season three. We loved working on raw material and we hope you enjoyed listening. Follow us on Instagram at raw material podcast to see photos from this season and hints about what's coming next in season four. I'm Jessica Placek. I'm Maddie Gobo. The music in this episode was by Ellery Kramer and Scott Hunter. Raw Material is a production of SF MoMA.